Welcome, welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight, I think we have a very interesting show, a little different than I have had in the past. Um, unfortunately, in the in the community, we've lost a few people who were very close to the kosher world, and uh, with whom I had a very warm relationship. And I want to share with you a few thoughts because we're going to be putting some mentions about them into the Kashrus magazine. And I want to share with you a little bit from the research that I did into a little bit about these people and uh, the impact that they had on us. First, I'd like to start with uh, Mr. Mendy Bauman, who was the owner of Glotmart. He uh, he was a trailblazer in the kosher field, and he was a real mensch. And uh, we we very much uh, appreciated the connection, which I had for, uh, I mean, I would say three decades and change with uh, Mr. Bauman. The uh, the Glotmart has been uh, one of our first advertisers and kept up with us throughout the years. And uh, Mendy Bauman, uh, is somebody who took a very strong interest in our magazine. I don't know if you can understand it because you're sitting on the other side, you're reading a publication. You know, does anybody think about what Ruth Lichtenstein is going through to, to write Hamodia or Penny Lifshitz to, to do uh, Yated? I mean, people don't really think about their lives and what's involved in, in creating a newspaper or a magazine. But I can tell you that there are very few people that have been proactive in helping my magazine over the years just as there probably were very few people helping Jewish Observer in its time or the Hamodia, there's probably a very limited number of people who actually helped out in some proactive way. Well, Mendy Bauman was one of those people. And uh, he, he started Glotmart in 1977. Kashrus Magazine, which was called then Kashrus Newsletter, started in 1980. So it was pretty close together. And I can't even remember when the, when he first started advertising with us. But, you know, it was a local butcher, and they had a store in the neighborhood, and we were reaching a lot of people in Brooklyn. Now, Baruch Hashem, we also reach outside of uh, Brooklyn and outside of New York. But still, the majority are here in the New York area, because that somehow, I don't know, that thing somehow seems to be my, my grouping. But Baruch Hashem, we have it all over the world, and uh, hopefully, you know, it's going to be even bigger in the near future. Some things are happening, and I'll let you know about it when they happen. But right now, let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Bauman. And uh, Mr. Bauman started the Glatmart. He started it together with a gentleman by the name of Jerry Shockett. And Mr. Shockett was his partner for many years until he got ill. Eventually, he... He was not able to work anymore, and uh, the company was bought out from him. And then uh, he passed away three years after that. And uh, he, so in terms of what people think of the Gladmar, they think of the Bauman family, which actually is the Bauman family is running it right now. Uh, the son, Doe Bauman, is is in charge of the Gladmar at the present time. 
when I want to talk a little bit about what he did as what we call innovator, what was so special, you know, a butcher is a, a store. Everyone just sort of feels that that's the way it is. But I remember, and if you're old enough, you do remember. If you're not old enough, so listen anyway. In the old days, there was a butcher. Okay, how many butchers in New York alone, New York City and Manhattan, New York City used to have in the in the, you know the early 1900s, you had I mean or in the mid 1900s probably mid 1900s let's say in the 40s, 50s, the, the New York had over 5,000 kosher butchers. Now I'm not making that number up. I saw it. You can find it. Go do any research. You'll see it. Over 5,000 kosher butchers, and today there's almost no kosher butcher left anywhere in the country that isn't doing what we call a supermarket, whether it's a large supermarket, a medium-sized supermarket. But there's no more anymore. There's no more place. There's no place left really that's a that's totally a butcher store. Only just does the meat and, you know, takes the raw animals and then starts cutting them up and then salting and salting them and uh, tabering from all parts of it. That's really almost not anymore. But in the old days, when uh, Mr. Mendy Bauman started, so that was considered to be the way to go. And he innovated the idea of a full kosher butcher store, which would include many, many kosher items. And and this was a chiddish, what I'm telling you now. He set it up that he had to have reliable kosher supervision. I remember a store in our general area. I'm not going to give hate details. And I had the interesting discussions with the owner of that store over what he considered to be acceptable kosher symbols because there were products coming in from Eretz Israel with, with, a, with, a, with nondescript hashkachos that nobody in this country would, should have been using. And that the owner of that store said to me, well, it's a closed package. You decide what you want. But that's not fair because the consumer is going to buy what you bring into the store. And if you have 90% or 95% good products, so if he has one or two or seven of the bad ones, you know, people are going to buy it. They're not going to be able to figure it out. That's the work that the supermarket has to do. And Mendy Bauman was a person who set up his store that Glatmart's going to carry reliable kosher products. But then he didn't stop there. He went further and said he's going to have kosher supervision on the store, which was absolutely unheard of at the time. And he's going to have kosher supervision on the store that every product that he's selling is acceptably kosher. Not just that I'm going to hide behind the fact that there's a rabbi on it. I want to know that that's something I could take in my house. And you'll hear the story I tell you about Moshe Gordon, and you'll see that it rings true here with uh, Mendy Bauman as well, about how you set up these standards. What standards are you supposed to use? So this is uh, this is an important point that people should remember about how he developed and was the first. That everyone says he was the first to develop the full kosher butcher store, which was you know more of a supermarket. Now. What was interesting in my work to, to find out more about Mr. Bauman was that, and I knew a lot of this because he talked to me quite a bit, and one of the things that I picked up is that 
he never wanted to use washed meat. Now, I don't even know if you re- even know what washed meat is. Maybe, of course, the people who learned halachas, they may know what the halacha is. But the halacha is that you have to salt your meat within 24 hours of slaughter. 24 hours of slaughter. If you don't, if you don't soak and salt the meat in 24 hours of slaughter, then halacha is that, that you cannot cook that meat. You can only broil it. Because the, because the Gaonim said that three day old meat is too tough, whatever it is, there's not going to be able to extricate the dam. The blood's not going to come out in the normal manner of salting. We need to do broiling. So that's very limiting. So if like, for example, if you have a liver and you didn't do the liver in three days, so then uh, we don't actually you broil the liver in three days. Um, you, if you don't, don't, soak, don't uh, salt it. But you have to do it right away because the three days is going to be hard to, to do anything later. It won't, won't be allowed afterwards to cook it once you broiled it. So three days is a halacha from the gaonim, which we apply uh, to regular meat that it has to be done in three days. Otherwise, we have to broil it. And with, this, and with the liver, if we don't broil it within three days, then we have a problem of whether we're allowed to cook it afterwards. So the sautéed on, sautéed liver and onions has to be done where the broiling is done within three days. So this is a very important halacha. So there's a header that people used to use of soaking the meat. Now if you soak the meat, literally, and you put it in, really you soak it within the three days, then the halacha is quite clear that the three days starts again. And you didn't lose it. So here's what used to happen in the old days. I don't know how much you can grasp it, but a little bit you can imagine. If the meat was shechted down in, uh, in, in, in the south, or vice versa, shechted in the north, and you had to ship it down to the south, Okay, you know how long it takes to get down to Florida or to come back from Florida. It's not a it's not a twenty four hour process. You just got a lo- it got a long trip. It's a long trip, and people can't drive twenty four hours a day. So you got a long trip. Could you make it in three days? If you're coming from the Midwest to New York or vice versa or something like this, how f- can you make it? And the problem is they didn't always make it, and if they made it maybe by the skin of their teeth, but a lot of times they didn't make it. So here's what happens. I, I, I know it myself because a good friend of mine actually taught together with me in yeshiva. He, he told me the story that he was a rub out of town. Fresh, new smicha. And there he is, out of town, and, they, and, and he gets a call, one o'clock in the morning. Rabbi, are you orthodox? <laughs> so he says, yes, I'm orthodox. I'm an Orthodox rabbi, and he's in a little town. I don't even know where. Rabbi, I drive a truck for kosher meat. I'm not Jewish. And I have to get down to somewhere, wherever it is, and and my, I'm running late. I need you to come over now. <laughs> One o'clock in the morning. I need you to come over now and wash the meat. So this rabbi, a young fellow... <laughs> He didn't have time to review Hilchas Malicha. He had to know it. He had to live it. In the middle of the night, he had to remember all Hilchas Malicha that he needed to kasha this meat at night. And he goes down there. They, the truck is sealed. They break the seal. And the, 
<laughs> he said, how do I do this thing? He gave him a, he gave him the hose and he had to hose it down in a certain way that he got all parts of the, of the, uh, of the meat from all sides. It was a messy operation in the truck and he's doing it from all sides, all this meat in the truck. And then they have to seal it up again and he has to put a stamp of something in there and he has to send a letter say, you know, is showing that so that they'll be able to know who to contact and who signed off on and who did the work. That's was the way it was in the good old days. Now, some people didn't play it that way. Some people used to soak the meat by just uh, putting, you know, uh, a little spray on it, and they said they smoke-soaked it, and they and they didn't know how to do it, and it's very hard to do it properly. And, and what can I tell you? And remember, this real young rabbi had remember Hilchus Malicha. Not everyone really remembers Hilchus Malicha properly. His, his father was Rosh Hashiva, so one of the, I mean, the Rebbe and the, the Yeshiva Gadol. Anyway, so... This is the story about washed meat. So many people accepted washed meat. Mendy Bama wouldn't take it. And I remember, I remember him telling me that he would get meat that would, it would say that it's the third day. In other words, because they put simonim on it to show, to identify when the meat was slaughtered, and they give a tag. What's written out, it's easier to see, you know, on a tag, and it's a metal tag, and that's what they used to use as plumber to identify when the the meat was slaughtered. And this way, the butcher, when he got the meat, would know if it's day one, which it never was, day two or day three. And Mendy Bauman told me, I don't take day three. It goes back because I don't know that it's really accurate. And I, I told him not to give me that meat. I don't want day three. And he wouldn't take it because I don't want washed meat. I don't want to come onto a cooler that might have been not done properly. I don't, it's all, you know, he knew that it was a little hanky-panky and there was things that weren't always done properly and he refused the meat. And, and, and in those days also, I know very well that there was meat that was sold under the table. You see, a man had a butcher store. I know it for a fact. Man at the butcher store, and he carried meat with a certain level of ashkacha. Everything in the store had that ashkacha, but that didn't stop him from buying and selling meat from one person to another, like a broker, never taking the meat into his store, never seen by his rabbi, and selling it off to somebody else. And then when the person who bought it would say. I bought it from Mr. So-and-so. The assumption being that it had this hashgacha, which it didn't. I know this for a fact, that this was something that was common. And I know people were given opportunities to buy meat on, uh, in funny ways that they weren't ever to find out where the meat actually came from. Don't worry, it's kosher. I'm telling you, it's kosher. There were people buying that kind of meat. Mendy Bauman said, not going to compromise. I'm going to decide where I buy my meat. I'm not going to rely on on these kind of situations. This is the way he was set up. I, I heard these stories from the family, but I knew myself from talking to him in the store. Now, I'm going to go on a little bit because time is moving along. We have to get on to other things tonight, too. A little bit about Mendy as a person. Now, Mendy was a lovely person 
who you had fun talking to. He was a strong personality. He he had opinions on everything, and he he wanted you to understand something. He wanted to discuss it with you. He would tell you all the ins and the outs. He would tell you everything that he did. I knew in the good old days where the buffalo came from and with this and how he got calves. How he got um, I mean uh, hooves. How did he who had hooves? He was selling hooves from a from a cows. I mean no one had hooves. He was selling the buffalo, the bison, whatever. He, before anybody and when no one else had it. He knew where to get things. He knew how to take care of it. He knew meat from beginning to end. That was Mendy Bauman. And uh, during his time, you know, he was the place. Everybody went to Glotmark to see trabering and to see salting. I took my classes over there. Over the years, I took a number of classes there. We were doing. I was doing Shira Man Hilchas Malicha, and and with my Sunday morning Shia, and I was and I had a group that I was training to do to become Mashgichim, and we take them down. In fact, they hired one of my my men was hired by with Glatmar was there for many years. He's still in Kashrus. He's still in Mashgichim, but not there in another place. He was the one who was doing the Kashrim, but they definitely were, it was a place to go. I was there in Glatmar. When Rabbi Heinemann, oh, sorry, Heinemann did a, yeah, Heinemann showed the Rabbanim in Flatbush how, to, uh, how meat is trabered. He took an animal, cut it apart, showed you everything that had to be taken out and what was the parts of the animal. He, he took an animal apart from the beginning and discussed the whole trabering situation. And a whole bunch of Rabbanim in Flatbush came there. I was there when, when Rabbi Belsky came. Rabbi Belsky, at those days, you don't know, you don't even, you people don't even remember this thing. He used to work originally for the Kuf K. I mean, it was always a Rosh Hashiva in Torvidas, a big tzaddik, very big tzaddik, and I had a lot of personal involvement with Rabbi Belsky. That's all. But Rabbi Belsky used to work for the Kuf K, and he was sent down by the Kuf K to see if Glatmart's meat is acceptable, and he was there. For 15 minutes. That's what we took him. I was there a couple of hours. We met at the same time, and it was very interesting to see how he approached it, what he's looking for, etc., etc. So that's the, it was the place that was open to everybody. You want to come in? It's open to you. There was no such thing as hide, you know, closed doors. It was open. Everybody had the right to go in to see how it was done, and Mendy took a pride in it like you can't believe that's why, you know, they get such a reputation for so many years. Now, let me just tell you also, this is a quote from Leslie Eaton. Now, who's Leslie Eaton? I don't know who Leslie Eaton is, but Leslie Eaton wrote an article for the New York Times on March 29, 1999. There was an article in the Times just about it, I mean, it tied into a business thing, but it was just about Glotmart. It was talking about the meat, the meat butcher stores in those days, but it was an interview with, with Mendy Baum, and it was about the store, and here's his lines. I think it's a beautiful line. I'm putting it into my story, so listen to it. It's a great line. Here's what Leslie, I changed it slightly, but couldn't help it. You wouldn't, because I don't think if my, my readers could handle the whole line. Anyway, here's what, here's what Leslie Eaton wrote. Fresh kosher meat is a store's specialty. And carts are piled with mountains of it. Brisket, rib roast, turkey chops, veal breast, ground round. Mr. Bauman stands amid the customers, 
alternately wisecracking and finding 10 pounds of livers for one woman, an extra chicken neck for a man's satyr, and a veal spare ribs for a harried mother. That was how Mendy operated. He was flying around the store. He was serving everybody. He was, he was like, you know, a bala boss, and all these were his guests. He cared about everybody that walked in the store. That's why he had that reputation, which is a second to none. And, and I don't care what store you go into. You're not going to find that kind of treatment where you count, where somebody cares about you, the little person walking into the store. Okay, they want to sell you product. But here, you were, you were human. <laughs> you were somebody that counted. Now, I wrote here that, that maybe the greatest act is what they did uh, in Hurricane Sandy. Now, somebody else wrote, I'm not telling you, but somebody else wrote about it, that he thought that they did a wonderful job uh, 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 during the blackout. The truth is that the Glotmart was affected by the blackout too. But Hurricane Sandy, we were on this side of 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 the situation. We weren't right in where the five towns are. We were just, uh, you know, a hand's throw away from it. And Mendy had the, uh, Mendy and Dove, they, they had the, uh, their, their refrigerators and their freezers operating perfectly. And they found out that one of their competitors was, had lost power and he had no place for, for, for all his product. There's a competitor, you understand? Competitor. So they called up and asked him, would you like to use Glotmart? It's open to him. Refrigerator space, freezer space, we have it available. So he assured them he had already found something. So they weren't perturbed. They said, okay, we're going elsewhere. And they went to the five towns in the Farakawa area and offered all the stores there We'll take in your 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 food and put it in our freezer and our refrigerator, so you won't lose it. So they stuffed it up their refrigerators and freezers with 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 uh, food that came from people who had stores in the five towns and in uh, far away. That's the kind of place that Glotmart is, whether you know it or you don't know it. And uh, Mendy Bauman was. The president of Camp Dora Golding, he was a big macher in every single shul. He helped everybody out. But one of the things that I mentioned in the article, and I really enjoyed when I spoke to the family, this is what they told me. It was a very, very unique thing. They told me that I see, I thought I was special. <laughs> I thought Mendy picked me out of the hat and said, I'm going to help you, and which is what he did. I'm going to explain this to you. I'm going to teach you this. I'm going to, I want you to come down. You must come down and see Malika. You must come down and see Betrabring. You can't just learn it in the safer. You got to see it. And he kept pushing me to come down, and I did. And I, I, I thought I was unique that he just befriended me. And then I learned he did it to everybody. Anybody who started up a business, if it was, you know, I, 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 he was he, in the food business, like, for example, a restaurant or somebody like that, he said, come down to my store. I want to show you meat. I want to teach it to you. I want you to see it with your own hands, with your own eyes. 
You can't be there in the store. How do you know what you're getting is delivered, has been traded properly? You must know. How do you know the Mamalicha was done properly? What's the difference between this and that? What does it mean to you, kosher? you got to come down and see it in my store. Come down. And that is what he used to do. And he used to help them, give them advice, give them connections. Whatever it was, he was there to help other people. A very unique individual somebody that I respected and I learned a lot from and I appreciated very much, Mendy Bauman from Glatmark. Now, there's another individual who just passed away. Maybe you didn't even hear the name. Maybe you did hear the name. You know the business, but you don't. maybe you don't associate the names. There was a Jew living here, also just passed away a few weeks ago, Moshe Gordon. I believe he's Rabbi Moshe Gordon. Now, Moshe Gordon was somebody who uh, he, he ran, he started, I mean, they eventually sold it. He, together with Moshe Plout, of the Mimchaim Mechaim, Moshe Gordon had owned Chapanash and uh, Young Key. So everybody knows those stores that are here now. But you don't know what was involved in the old Chapanash, the old Yankee under Moshe Gordon and Moshe and Moshe Plow. I can't tell all the stories on here on the on the radio. I don't want to get into an area that might hurt some people or offend some people or just in any way. I can't do that. But I can tell you this. Years ago, the Vad Harabun of Flatbush was the only Hashkoch in Flatbush. The first hashkacha, besides the Vada Rabban Maflapush, was the Ark, A-R-K, which was Rabbi Reisman from the Aguda in Farakaway. And that first store that he gave hashkacha to was Chapanash Nyanki. Now, maybe you'll think that's a history lesson, and maybe it is, but listen to this story. Rabbi Reisman almost doesn't know Hashkocha anymore. He's closed up the ark, whatever it is. But till today, he's giving Hashkocha to Paradise Catering. Who's Paradise Catering? That was Moshe Gordon and Moshe Plout, And what's so special about Paradise Catering? Because they do Marina del Rey, which is a high-end place in, in the Bronx. And you might have been going once or twice to Mandare. It's a little bit hard to find. I I got lost getting there. It didn't take long to get back, but I definitely got lost when I went. You make one turn wrong and you're you're over the bridge, which is what I did. In any event, uh, he gives that. He continues to give that ashkocha. Their connection with them has been a matter of close. I don't know, thirty, forty years, whatever it is. It's a very long time. Thirty years easily between the between Rabbi Reisman and uh, M- Moshe Gordon. And Moshe Gordon was a Talmud Chacham. I saw him practically every Shabbos. He sat uh, as far as Nisim is sitting for me now in, in, in Mir Yeshiva. And Moshe Gordon was somebody who was a Talmud Chacham and who was involved for the Gedolim in many, many issues. 
the gedolim of the past generation. Names like Rabbi Shach, Rabbi, Rabbi Elias Fay, these weren't just stories you read in the book. He worked with them. I'm not talking about dinners now and catering. I'm talking about he was sent cases to solve. He was sent, whether it was some chesed, I don't even know all the details. I spoke to the brother about it. There's a, there were many, many stories, and I remember from the old days, he was involved in stories of chesed where the gedolim said, ask Moshe Gordon to do it. Because Moshe Gordon came from a European family background with people who were the B'nai Torah from the previous generation. And he, as a young person, was brought into a contact with these gedolim. And they knew he was a doer, an activist. And when something had to be done, ask Moshe Gordon to do it. That's what, that's what used to happen. But I really am not involved in that, and so I'm going to just tell you stories that I heard from him. A few stories that I heard from him about Kashrus. Now, the, the, the first one is about the very beginnings of Moshe Gordon's involvement with kosher. When he first started Chapanash and Yonki, and he first started to get his feet wet in the food business, he didn't know what to do. In the, those days, not everybody had hashkocha. The very, very beginning, none of everyone had hashkocha. All the, the restaurants and caterers in Borough Park had absolutely no hashkocha. And when I say all, I mean all. There was only one place that I believe used to have hashkocha in the old days, and I believe that was Rabashkin. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, but in the old days, when I remember, no one basically in Borough Park had hashkocha because they were from a Yidden, and they didn't really require hashkocha, and people weren't asking them to get hashkocha. It started... Much later, I don't remember the exact years, if it's the 80s, the 90s, but definitely it was back in the, you know those years. But it, for years and years and years, they were never using any Ashkocha because it Elachiyid. What do you need more than that? But when the scandals came up, when the KIC started, etc., at that point they pressured pressured the people in Borough Park to Ashkocha. In any event, Moshe Gordon, in the beginning, he had to decide what kind of standards of kosher he's going to do. There's no rabbi to give Ashkocha. What do I do? So how do you make a decision? So Moshe Gordon went to Rabbi Feldman. Rabbi Feldman was the Mash- Tzvi Hirsch Feldman was the Mashkiach Ruchni of Mir Yeshiva here in Flatbush. Rabbi Feldman was the person that everybody went to for advice in the Yeshiva. We went to for advice and for halacha. The Rosh Yeshiva sent you have a shaila, gates in the mashkiach. You have a problem, gates in the mashkiach. Everybody was sent to the mashkiach. That's whom you go to for advice or for halacha. So Moshe Gordon went to the mashkiach and asked him, "How do I, Rebbe, How do I do it? What am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, there's endless levels of ashka, of kashrus and and, and there's this shchit and that thing. And what do I do?" So the the mashkir said to him, and I'm almost quoting it word for word. I did the best I could to remember how he said it to me. Here's what he said. 
conduct your restaurant and catering just as you would your own kitchen. Only what you would eat should be served. If you'll eat it, then it's fit to serve others. And when Moshe heard that, Moshe Gordon heard that from Chapanash Yunkin, he said, that's the way I'm going to go. And all the years he said, what would I do? What do I want? What do I want for me? That's what I'm going to give the people who are coming to me. And that's how he set up a, an exemplary level of kashras. That leads me to my next story. And the next story is, what can I tell you? I wrote about it, and I think I'm standing there myself, even though I never saw it. It's just the story that he told me. But you can't get the story out of your mind. Now, you understand what a, what a caterer is, because Moshe Gordon was a caterer. In addition to owning those, those restaurants he, and, and takeout, he was a caterer. And he, his catering was done with a broyer's hashkocha. In those days, the 80s and 90s, in those days, the top hashkocha that I know of in New York was broyer's. Broyer's was very mockpit on everything. No question about it. They had a top-notch staff. I could tell you the names, but I don't want to go through that whole thing. They were the top-notch of, of, of kashras in America, basically the top. It was a Hamish Rashkocha, but it was an Americanized. Their Diane Posen was the ch- in charge. Rabbi Gelly, first Rabbi Schwab. At those times, we're talking about Rabbi Schwab. Rabbi Schwab was the was the uh, was the Rosh Rav Machshir. He was the Rav of the of the Broyer's community, and Rabbi Jurvel was Avraham Jurvel was the Mashkiach, and everything was unbelievable. And those was one those are the ones who trained me into kashras. That's where I got my kashras experience from, from Avram Jurvel, who took me also the same thing. Rabbi Yosef, you can't write about kashras unless you see it. Come down. It's gonna be late at night and everything, but come down. We're going to Manhattan and we're gonna to meet together in the Hilton, we're gonna meet in the in the Sheridan, and we're gonna see the way kashras is done in the in the in the rest in the uh, hotels, how we kasha the all the stoves and everything in the side. And I learned everything from them and I saw the blowtorch, the whole nine yards, how they did sinks, how they do it. I learned so much from the from Rabbi Yajovel, you can't believe. Anyway, back with our story. Moshe Gordon is there. It's a very fancy affair. I don't know where it was, but one of these hotels. And on the dais is sitting, uh, is sitting his uh, Rabbi Machshir, Rabbi Shimon Schwab from Breuer's. And as Moshe is going by, because he has to run through with the affair, make sure everything's going okay here, we go into the kitchen, go, we go through the dining room, get over there, make sure there's this stand is being, the, the liquor's okay. He's running around the whole room. And he sees Rabbi Schwab. He's standing a little far back. He sees Rabbi Schwab, and he sees the plate in front of him has the whole prime ribs of beef sitting there untouched. He walks over to Rabbi Schwab and says, is anything wrong? You know, everything okay? So Rabbi Schwab says, sure, fine. Everything's, everything's perfect, Moshe. And Moshe goes, stop walking around. Now he's going around to the hall, the, plate, the hall. And a little while later, he goes back and he takes a look again, and he sees that Rabbi Schwab did not touch the food there. Now he's getting worried. 
you know, it's his hashkocha. He's giving the hashkocha to me, the rabbi, to Moshe Gordon. And and I, I got to make sure everything's okay. So I go over to him, he goes over to him, and he says to, to Rabbi Schwab, you know, excuse me, I, I don't, I see the rope didn't eat anything. You know, I'm giving the, I'm the caterer here, and, and if anything is wrong, I have to find out. I'll, I'll, I'll fix anything you tell me. But you must tell me what's wrong. So I see you didn't eat anything. So Rabbi Schwab said, no, 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 no. Come here, come here, Rabbi Moshe, come here. See, look at this piece of meat. You see over there on the left-hand corner, you see a little nibble? That's what I ate. It's too late for me to eat meat. <laughs> that was the story. It's too late for me to eat meat at night. And, and, but that's the way he took his hashgacha seriously. <laughs> Maybe somebody would have hid in the kitchen. But he went there. I got to find out what's wrong. If it's something wrong, I got to fix it. That's how he took kashras. The words of Rav Feldman still ringing in his ears. Now, there's another story I want to share with you. This is sort of the last story that I have about him. You know, insect infestation is bad. But 10 years or so ago, it like blew out of the water. Everyone would became aware at one time how bad things really were. And that's, I don't remember exactly the point, but I do remember that at that time, a lot of people, for a while, stopped using the leafy vegetables completely. They weren't able to find anything. Maybe there was one in the country that was doing a perfect job, but everybody else was pretty far off. And there was an awareness that came about that insects infestation in vegetables is serious business. And many people pulled back, and stopped using certain vegetables. And I knew Moshe Gordon had this high-end place in Maria del Rey. And I figured, how's he going to get away without serving vegetables to these people who are paying a lot of money for a fancy affair? And they want to have those leaf vegetables. That seems to be what they, everybody does. So I asked him, what do you do at Paradise in Maria del Rey? See, he told me sometimes he's able to buy that one brand that everybody knows is, is is perfectly clean or as close to humanly possible as perfectly clean. See, he can buy some of that sometimes, but he can't get the volume he needs. He can't get it every single type. If the people are bothering him to get a special type of, vet, of vegetable and they don't make that, he can't, you know, just tell them to go fly a kite. These people are paying real money. So he's got to come up with those vegetables. So he said, what I do is there are a couple of experts. These are people that the, every one of the organizations is trying to get them to help them out. These are the two or three people that are tops in the industry. I hire them. And I pay 35 to $50 an hour. This is more than 10 years ago. I pay 35 to $50 an hour. Listen, whatever I'm going to serve those vegetables, but I want them to sleep at night. I want to make sure that those vegetables are 100% good. So I'm going to pay the $35, $50 an hour. I mean, it's only, you know, a certain number of hours a day or whatever, but I'm going to pay that extra money because I want to make sure that those vegetables are really good. And here he was doing this when nobody in the industry did it. Nobody. 
Everybody got their own mashkichim. They do the best job they can, and that was it. If you wanted to buy from a bag, from somebody with a bag, fine. If you don't want to buy from the bag, then you go ahead and you take you take your mashkichim, tell them, do a good job, and send them on their way, and that's it. And you'll sleep at night, you know, and they did the best they could. No, it wasn't good enough for Moshe. Moshe Gordon wanted them to be sure because he had ringing in his ear what the mashkiach, Rabbi Feldman, told him. Conduct your restaurant and catering just as you would your own kitchen. Only what you would eat should be served. That's how he did it. There's no compromises. People are going to get their veggies, but it's going to be fully kosher. And, and no one knew to what lengths he went to make sure that it was kosher. I heard the story, but the people who were, who were coming to those affairs didn't know what he did. But he knew that Rabbi Feldman told him this is what he's got to do. At one time, I was there in Maria del Rey. I mean, I think I'm I think I was only there twice in my life. But one time I was there in Marie and Dore, and I caught Ramosha, and it was before the fair, or I was early for once, or even if I wasn't early for once, it was a time, it was a little slow time. So he said, come with me, I'll show you around the kitchen. So he took, he took me around the kitchen. The kitchen wasn't big, but it was locked. He said, it's my kitchen. Nobody comes in here. I said, but are you sure? No one he said, listen, one time there was a problem. I think it was a blackout. or I, I forgot exactly what it was. They had to get into his, his kitchen. The, 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 the business, the Marina Del Rey had to get into his kitchen. The only way they could get in was to break the lock. And then he had a kasha, whatever was in there. Maybe threw things out too. But the point is, he knew that he's got it really locked up because the only way they could get in was to break the lock. They didn't have any fancy way to get in. They had to break the lock and go for the money and then throw the money. That's it. Now, he had a lot of people who uh, came there who weren't from him that, w- that got permission to use Maria Del Rey also. He wasn't, I think, the exclu- I believe he was not the exclusive. And sometimes other people would come for catering there. But he was, you know, he had his own, he's the only one that had that kitchen. And if somebody else came in, was allowed to come in as a caterer, he could not use Moshe Gordon's kitchen. Nobody is going in there except me. Because I know what's going on in there. And that's what I'm going to give people. This, this was a special Jew. This was a very special Jew combined, unique blend of Torah and Chesed in the real sense, you know, helping people who were in need, working with the Gedolim, and serving people kosher that they never knew they were getting. This is, these are our people. We lost two very, very, very special people in our neighborhood. Hashem should help us to fill the gap. And we, as people who saw this, have to do what we can to improve the situation. Now, I have a few minutes left, and I'm going to be able to uh, share with you a couple more things. 
I think we'll talk a little bit about the Bertoli oil fiasco. This is from right now. The Bertoli oil class action lawsuit was settled for $7 million in April. I can't pronounce it well. You'll excuse me if you speak Italian. Diolio USA Incorporated, that's the ones who make Bertoli, Diolio, has reportedly agreed to pay $7 million to settle a class action lawsuit alleging it made misrepresentations about Bertoli olive oil. Did you hear me clearly? I said the biggest olive oil company you ever heard of, Bertoli, one of the biggest, right? Forget about the Olio. That's the name. You just don't know it. But it, but this is the a big company, Bertoli. They got they clipped them for seven million dollars because they were cheating. Right, you heard it. Olive oil. Okay, it's not going to be where they have substituted the uh, tray for olive oil. Okay, I'm gonna. I, I'm not. I'm not going to be able to get that one on this on this round. But I want you to see the kind of thing that's happening in the olive oil industry and how easy it is and how it was malicious. According to the Bertoli class action lawsuit, Diolio misrepresented Bertoli olive oil as being imported from Italy. (laughs) In other words, it's not from Italy. And that it qualified as extra virgin olive oil through the best buy date. The plaintiffs note that Diolio has already removed the phrase imported from Italy. It wasn't from Italy. Now, do you think that Bertolio didn't know it wasn't from Italy? They knew it wasn't from Italy. But how can Bertoli sell the olive oil from somewhere in the United States or whatever, some other country? They had to sell Italian olive oil, but they didn't have it. Oh, this was cheaper. <laughs> this, this is what they did to you. This is what the olive oil, the big olive oil guy did to you. Now, that's that's what they found out. And they said they're going to stop using that. and uh, They're going to only be able to say uh, imported from Italy if their olives were grown and pressed in Italy. Well, what else is Italian olive oil supposed to be? The Olio also reported starting bottling its extra virgin olive oil in dark green bottles to protect the product from light degradation. Further, the plaintiffs say that the Olio agrees to stricter testing protocols during the bottling process to shorten the best buy period and to disclose the extra version standards, I'm sorry, the date of harvest on every bottle of Bertoli extra virgin oil to help ensure the product meets extra version standards at the time of sale and use. Now, you don't know all about this, but extra virgin is a claim. And it has to be backed up. And the way that they know is some they find out the uh, acid content and based upon the, the testing that they do, they can substantiate whether it really is extra virgin or not. But if you don't have that testing, if the information is inaccurate, isn't provided properly, then people are writing on extra virgin when it's not extra virgin. So they're ripping off the people and they're charging a lot of money for it. And this is what's happening. So isn't it just as well possible that instead of olive oil, you're getting regular vegetable oil, which may not be kosher? 
Isn't it just possible? And of course it's possible. I don't, did not in this case with Bertoli on this particular run, but that's that's definitely in the uh, possible range. We continue. Class members of the proposed Bertoli settlement include anyone in the United States who purchased Bertoli extra virgin olive oil since May 23, 2010. And anyone who purchased Bertoli olive oil labeled as imported from Italy between May 23, 2010 and December 31, 2015. So they're going to get some of this money. They're going to get a cash refund of up to $7.25 per bottle purchased. That's how much of a ripoff it was. They're going to get $7.25 per bottle purchased. No proof of purchase will be required for class members submitting a claim for up to five bottles. I'm not suggesting people lie and send it in. But the point is, we are now looking at a major company with a major ripoff, and they they were nabbed. And what is it? They faked it out in olive oil, and they got away with it for a while. And we know that in that industry, of the olive oil industry, it's rampant with this kind of stuff. I thought that was interesting. Now, I have a piece here which I happen to enjoy. I can't write about it. because I'll tell you why I can't write about it. Because Mr. Horowitz, Roger Horowitz, wrote a book called Kosher USA. And if you read it, I'm not suggesting you read it, but if you do read it, you'll see right away that Mr. Horowitz is not representing Orthodox Jewry. But the point, uh, the book is a great, great, great book. But I can't talk about it in a positive way in my magazine. I wouldn't dare mention it. But I'll read to you something that he said since he wrote his book. He has three little pieces, very interesting. He noticed three new things. Number one has to do with Pesach. While kosher has continued to advance in general, you don't see big mainstream brands going Pesach, kosher for Pesach. In other words, they don't want to go kosher for Pesach. They'll go kosher for all year round, but they don't want to go kosher for Pesach because they don't like the idea of giving up the corn syrup, which is kidneyous, and 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 paying for special runs in the factories, cleaning it up in between, you know, to make a kosher pesach. It's a big deal. So that pesach is not something they're running to. Yes, companies are becoming kosher all the time, but pesach, Dick, these companies are very afraid to do. It's an interesting observation. Second one, I'm not sure exactly where he's headed, so I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not just not sure what he meant. And the third one is an interesting thing. The third thing I've noticed since the book was first published is the tremendous expansion of kosher options at colleges and universities. I don't have a number, but it's an explosion. There's an effort by the OU to facilitate that expansion, and it's part of how universities are recruiting observant students. Not something that I want to promote, but it's definitely something interesting to note. Yes, kosher is becoming much more available on the university campus all across the country. And it's a combination of a few things, that which Mr. Horowitz knows and that which he doesn't know. One thing is that the 
kosher observant Jews are working together with the Arabs on all of these campuses. And the Arabs are huge numbers, and they want halal even more than the kosher want kosher. So they join together because the university is not going to make a kosher dining room, a halal dining room, a tray for this dining room, a vegetarian dining room. They're not going to make the whole world crazy. So they, what they, if they'll do one, they'll do a combo of halal and kosher. And that's what they do. They give them halal and kosher at the same time. And this solves all their problems. But this is giving kosher, the kids who keep kosher, a tremendous block because the Arabs are huge. That's what's really happening. And the other thing you don't know, which is simple to figure out, is that Chabad is figuring out a way to get into that contract with the uh, with the kosher food, meaning that Chabad is, is is presenting itself as a facilitator to get the kosher food on the campus. And the people have a lot of money that they pay the university for the food, and it can be switched over to, for them to get involved in it. So a lot of times they're getting involved. They get involved on the campus food, and they get involved with these trucks. They sometimes come in that trucks, you know, like a little food truck where you come in and you eat a little, you know, <laughs> eat food right outside the truck. So they're bringing those trucks in, and they're doing special things on the campuses and dining room on the campus. So they, the, the Kabad got very involved in it. And the uh, and, and we have the fact that the um, we have the fact that the uh, the Arabs the, you know the, the the Muslims are very interested in working together with the Jews on it. I don't want to talk about it too much on, even on this radio show, but the young people are working very closely together the the Arabs and the Jews too closely for my for comfort, but it, but definitely it's better that way, at least I think, than fighting, and it. Maybe it'll make more friends for Israel, maybe. Maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. You could decide yourself. But it's a fact that they're working very closely together. One place, it's not on a university, but it is a Jewish organization. It's a Y, like YMHA. So one Y, Jewish Y, made kosher meals for Muslims and Jews to break the fast of Ramadan. The, the Arabs fast on Ramadan and eat at night in a festive manner. And this why, to bring the religions together, decided to create meals, or a meal, at least one, one of the nights of Ramadan with the Jews and the Muslims together. That's over the that's over the top. That's not something we could promote. We don't hold from that, and we we hope that they will get a little seichel and realize that this is not a good method to uh, a good thing to do. But working on a joint program in the in the college campuses has helped, and I don't know if you understand why it's important. I'm not sending people to the university, certainly not to the universities where they have to sleep away in in a college campus. But I will tell you that because of these kosher facilities, many Jews are remaining from. Because when you take a Jewish kid and you put him on a college campus, the first year, he's glad kosher. The second year, 
he may do a little some funny stuff. By the third or the fourth year, you lost 50% of the people. Now, when you have good kosher program, you're going to be able to retain them. And that's that's what's important to me. Not not to get people to go to those universities, but not to lose the kids who go there. So Baruch Hashem, we're losing less of those kids. But I still think you're better off in yeshiva, better off in seminary in Israel. And if you have to go to some kind of college for some reason, they have a hetter to go, try something here, right here in, in town or over the internet if you're allowed to do that. And you don't even have to go out of your house. And, and many people got the advanced degrees on the internet, never went to a college class in their life. So try to find another alternative, but I can't help you in that regard. So this is a little bit of an idea of what's going on in the in the kosher world that we do at Conscious Magazine. You know, we're getting a lot of response to the uh, to the kosher travel guide. Three hundred and sixty cities. A gentleman called me up today. He's making some recommendation for next year. He said for years he's seen something that wasn't right, and now he decided to call me up. <laughs> so I'll change it right away. But I can't get it until next year. I just think that we may do something in the middle of the year because a lot of stuff came in the last week or two. I've got in so many contacts with emails and calls about details that people want me to include their city next year. So it's a great book. You get a chance, pick it up. There aren't too many places you're going to be able to find it. We have cut back on a lot of our stores. You will be able to get it. It's not available yet. I think we'll be able to get it in the Eichlers. You can get it now at Teferistam. It's available in Teferistam. You can call us at 718-336-8544, 718-336-8544, or you can email us at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Uh, to get a book, the, the Kosher Soup Travel Guide. It's only $9. And if you want, you can get it on Amazon, amazon.com. Just say Kosher Travel Guide or 2018 Kosher Travel Guide or or just say Kosher's Magazine. You'll be, maybe you'll get it also. And if you want to, you can go to our website and get it the fastest, and that is uh, com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S magazine.com. And you can just order it right online, and we'll ship it out within a day or two. So uh, that's the, probably the easiest way. And if for some reason you want to pick up a copy at our office, you can contact us at 718-336-8544. We will be able to set it up with you so you can get a, a copy uh, in five minutes. <laughs> okay? So that's 718-336-8544, kashrus at AOL.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com, or kashrusmagazine.com. And uh, these are the, you know, the exciting times when th- this book comes out is one of our major, major efforts. The next one, which is going to be the Kosher Supervision Guide, is unbelievable. We already had 1,396 kosher symbols and organizations. Next year, of course, it's going to go into the 1,400s if it doesn't hit 1,500. But it's definitely going to hit the 1,400s. And we, we have started working on it already for, for the fall. In September, the new kosher supervision guide is going to come out. It's at least 220-something pages. I'm not sure how big it will be in the end, but it's a book 
with a perfect bind, something you can keep for years. And if you get it as part of your subscription, if you want to get it, uh, just contact us at 718-336-8544. Until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Cautious Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.